happy Father's Day. Hope you all uh, get a hold of your father. Tell him happy Father's Day if you can, if you're able to do that. Um, it's a good thing. You know, Father's Day is uh, an important uh, recognition of fathers. Um, we see in the scriptures, God is called our heavenly father. And let's be honest, fatherhood is not an easy role as uh, neither is motherhood, okay? But being a father is not easy. It's a tough task and a tough role. And so uh, fathers need encouragement too. They act like they don't, but they do. Um, <clears throat> try to act tough, you know, we're supposed to. But the truth is that uh, encouragement is important. And Irma Bombeck, who was an author years ago, she wrote a column and uh, books and things like that. She wrote on fatherhood. She said, you know, I didn't grow up with a father. And so I didn't know what fathers did, the role that they played in the life of their kids. But she said, then I got married uh, and uh, we had children. And so I got to see my husband in that role. And she said, I discovered what some of the things that fathers did for their kids. She said, they, uh, as a father, her husband... He threw uh, the kids higher in the air up over his head, you know, over and over again until they, uh, they were laughing and couldn't stop. Brought joy to the family, right? He cast the important deciding vote on the puppy question. <clears throat> it's an important, important vote for dads to make. He listened more than he talked. He let the kids make mistakes. He allowed them to fall off the bike when they're learning how to ride the bike. He let them fall uh, without freaking out, having a heart attack, right? Um, she said he read the newspaper while the kids were learning uh, to parallel park, you know, practicing that for their driving exam. Uh, read the newspaper, relaxed while they were working on that. Uh, she said, if I had to tell someone, son, what a father really does, that is important. It would be that he shows up for the job in good times and bad times. He's a man who is consistently being observed by his children. They learn from him how to handle adversity, how to handle anger, disappointment, and even success. He won't laugh at their dreams, no matter how outlandish or impossible they might seem. He'll get up at 1 a.m. to go rescue one of his kids who's run out of gas. He'll make unpopular decisions and stand by them. When he's wrong, he'll admit it. When he makes a mistake, he'll admit it. He sets the tone for how the family members treat one another, um, how they treat members of the opposite sex and people who are different than they are. By example, he can instill a desire to give something back to, uh, to their community. But mostly a good father involves himself in his kids' lives. The more responsibility a dad takes for his kids the harder it is for them to walk out of his life. <laughs> and that's very important at times. Um, a father has a potential to have uh, and is a powerful force in the life of a child. So fathers, grab that opportunity. Don't let go of it. Even when it's tough, even when it feels like it might not be working, don't give up because uh, you're so important and so needed. And someday... On a day like this, you might receive a greeting card for your efforts. You, you may not, but either way, it's steady work. I want to say a prayer for fathers if I could. God, we thank you for the role of father. You, of course, created that role. Um, you designed it, and you have uh, given instructions and, and direction as to how, it should, uh, how we should function in that role as men. I thank you for the men in this room and the men in our church who have stepped into that role and are shouldering that responsibility. 
I want to pray for them, that you would protect their heart and mind, that you would uh, instill in them the confidence and courage to continue to walk out that role and to fulfill that task and that responsibility and that presence in their kids' lives. I pray that they'd be good fathers and good husbands and that they would keep their eyes on you and they'd draw their strength and courage from you. God, would you protect them from the, from the distractions, from the, the pitfalls that uh, we can get caught in as men. And God, keep the men in this, in this room and in this church on track. Give them strength and courage to stand for you, to lead their families to you, and to even lead the places where they work, our community, our country to you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey, we're continuing our series this week uh, on, uh, cult- it's called Culture Shock. And I uh, called it that because trying to deal with some maybe controversial, maybe difficult issues that we're facing in our culture. There are things that our culture is moving towards that are in opposition to what the scriptures teach. We have the word of God that's been given to us, the Bible. It's been handed down to us and protected for us. We believe the Bible is the inspired word of God, that God actually wrote or spoke through human beings. So it was, uh, it was human beings that wrote the words on the page, but that God inspired them or spoke through them. And so it is the very words of God which give us direction and instruction. And so we take them very seriously. We think the Bible is to be understood by us. And then surrendered to or to come under what the Bible teaches because it's not just, again, a book, but it is the words of God. It's his direction for us. And so as we engage some uh, maybe difficult topics, it might be a little touchy in our culture, it might cause some controversy, some conflict, uh, the goal here is to give us uh, a sense of what God's word says so that we're grounded in that. And then, of course, uh, the way we handle that is we engage others, right? The world around us is we handle it with love. Where Jesus is said of Jesus that he came and spoke the truth in love. And so as he encountered people, individuals in this world that were caught in different sin patterns and struggled with sin, he always had a connection that was based on his care and concern for them, his love for them. And then it was from that, that position and that posture he was able to speak the truth. And if you look at Jesus, if you just do a study of Jesus and his interactions with people, it is fascinating how quickly Jesus went to the heart of some difficult issues in people's lives. But they never um, were off put by him in the sense of thinking he was being mean or harsh. But they knew that he cared about them. And this, of course, is our posture. So what I'm doing this morning is dealing with maybe some difficult issues and giving us a sense of what God's word says so we can stand on that, stand firm on that. The truth is we live in a culture... That, uh, that is going to and has been moving away from the truth of what God says. And this is nothing new. Uh, I do think uh, the United States, uh, America is an interesting country in that its founding, if you look back at it, really did have in its formation uh, a desire to follow and adhere to uh, the truth of God's word, to take what God's word says and to apply it to the beginnings of this country, to try to use those things, the truth, whether it was the rules that God uh, established that we see in the scripture, the direction, but to use those things to give our country its foundation. And so really in a lot of ways, uh, the Bible is in the DNA of this country. Now from, the, from its founding though, there were those who very quickly began to try to move away from that 
because it might be a surprise to you, might come to a surprise to you, but not everybody wants to follow what God says, right? Not everybody wants to be bound by uh, God's directions. And so uh, it's very natural that that's happened and it continues to happen today. As a country, we've been through several uh, cultural revolutions and we're certainly in the middle of one right now, uh, a, a pretty seismic cultural revolution. If you didn't know that, um, you might want to come out of your cave there's a world. <laughs> There's lots of people around. No, I'm, I'm joking. But I mean, we see it, right? We see uh, this revolution going on in the press and the, the pressure being put on us and on our country to move in directions. And this isn't new. Uh, back in the 60s, there was a pretty significant cultural revolution through that decade. It didn't start then. It didn't end then. But a lot of stuff happened in that decade. Uh, things like uh, sort of attempts to redefine the gender roles when it comes to men and women and how they interact together. And there was attempts to redefine the rules regarding sexual activity uh, for human beings and what the, what the guidelines were, what, we, what should be done. And, uh, and then by the end of it, there was a, a gay pride movement that emerged out of uh, the late 60s. And so that was a decade of some huge seismic shifts in our culture. And if you were, um, uh, some of you certainly were alive during that decade and you know it was, uh, and that wasn't it. There was, there was a lot of other stuff going on. So, kind of in a similar time now. And so we need to be aware of that, but also uh, have a sense of where we stand and why. And so I want to engage this morning when it comes to culture shock, uh, uh, what the Bible has to say about sexual issues, sexual behavior, and then gender identity. These are some hot button issues for us today. The 60s, of course, unleashed this sexual revolution where it was encouraged to um, the restrictions on sexual behavior uh, that were to throw the doors off those and, and uh, have a lot more um, free love, I think it was called. And so, uh, and so that was the push. And so there were some things that had to be done or were, were done in order to encourage that and allow for it. And they, they kind of center around birth control of some kind. Um, I know um, I remember when the uh, distribution of condoms in school was being pushed and really uh, uh, encouraged, hey, we've got to do this, we've got to encourage that, we're going to have um, too many unwanted pregnancies and, and um, uh, disease you know, spreading and all that, and so it was encouraged as a positive thing. Well, since the push for contraceptives in, among teenagers, teenage sexual activity and pregnancy have increased over 400%. And so... Uh, uh, one of the things we do need to understand is when we encourage something, when we, uh, when we enable something, it's going to grow. <laughs> it's like when I lived in Colorado and pot was legalized. Oh, it isn't going to change anything. It's no big deal. Everybody does it already. Oh, no. <laughs> the use among young people shot through the roof. That's what happens. Uh, it's interesting to me how some people deny that or want to pretend as though it's not going to happen. But the truth is, if we, if we encourage something, even make it legal is to say that it's okay, you're going to see an increase in its activity. And so that has led also, 1973, you know that uh, Roe v. Wade and the, and the, the sort of legalization and uh, um, uh, encouragement of, uh, of abortion is also um, a consequence. It was, um, in, in some ways, came about because of uh, the attitude and perspective on sex and sexual activity in the 60s. And so we know the consequences of that, though um, many argue still try to argue that it's for, um, you know, rape, incest, life of the mother, that those are the reasons we continue to perform abortions. Though, if you look at the numbers, uh, those incidents 
And the reason that abortion happens for those reasons is so minuscule, it's almost unable to measure those things. The real reason that we have abortion is for birth control. That is what America has used it for. And certainly, the life, the toll on lives that that's taken is uh, staggering. Um, And so there's consequences to these things, is what I'm trying to say. When we move away from God's intention and his will and his plan, and when we reject what he has to say, we move in a direction that may feel good, it may seem good, right, to us, and we may see positives in it. Oh, no, this is a good thing. It's always presented to us that way. (laughs) It's a good thing. And yet the consequences, the result is always destruction. It's always pain that it brings into our lives. And so it's important that we get a view of the world based on God's word. There are some people that think to view the Bible as a source of authority, that it speaks to everything, is old-fashioned, small-minded. It's to uh, dictate your life according to your faith, which is something that you, is just kind of a make-believe thing. You don't really know that it's true. And so uh, you're basing your whole life on that. Well, the the truth is that those in our world, philosophers, uh, intelligent, um, or, or the intellectuals, are looking for um, what is called as an acronym, uh, is, uh, they're looking for the TOE. And the TOE is, stands for the theory of everything, okay? Theory of everything. And uh, I have a, a theologian, a pastor, a teacher who I've uh, listened to and read his books and um, spent some time with him. And he said, you know, the Bible presents um, uh, the idea um, and it presents the concept here and an answer to that question in that it presents... Um, what he has coined God's big toe. And that is uh, a theory of everything from the scriptures, that God is the originator of life, that all things come from him. And certainly that does provide for us a very cohesive, logical, um, very self-evident answer as to how we got here, why we're here, what the purpose of all this is, and why it works the way it does. And so um, I constantly, as a pastor, am trying to uh, pull back or push towards uh, people that have the opportunity to uh, get to know and spend time with uh, towards what God says and to the reaffirmation of the word of God as real truth. You know, the Bible, as I've been saying in this series, is not a child's book. The Bible wasn't written by children for children, okay? Um, The Bible is an adult book, (laughs) And if you come to our foundation classes, you're going to get a little more of a taste of what it looks like to study the Bible at a more in-depth level. And it's not just a cursory reading where we're looking for the verses to say exactly what we want, uh, you know, very plainly so that we get direction. But we have to read the Bible um, at a deeper level to understand the implications of what is talked about. And so today, as we engage these topics... Um, of some sexual issues and uh, some gender identity issues, it really comes down to, and I want us to start off with this, is what, if we're going to understand who we are, why we're here, what this is all about, then we've got to start off by answering the question, what was God's original design? What was God's original design? How did he create the world? How did he create us? What's the purpose here and what was his intention And so we find some direction on that. We find some evidence that gives us uh, insight, starting the book of Genesis, the the book of origins. By the way, there's many that have looked for other answers to origins. Where do we come from, right? How did we get here? And people sound really smart 
when it comes to how the world began, they present their ideas of how this all started, different ideas. But the place that it all stops and where it all breaks down is how did life begin? And I think it's fascinating that when I was a kid, the idea of uh, aliens was kind of a topic for, you know, movies. And it was a little bit of a, a little bit comical. You know what I mean? Like if you believed in aliens, huh? tin hat, you know, uh, tinfoil hat, you know, you're a little weird, right? Okay, but now the answer to life and its origins by the intelligentsia in our world has gone to the answer that they have come up with is that world and uh, life entered our solar system. It's alien life. That's where it came from. That's how it got here. And so I find it fascinating what can seem silly uh, uh, 20 years ago is now the answer. Um, I just think that we should uh, be fair about that and be honest about it. You know, not trying to be flippant, but there's something that happens when you deny God and you deny the truth of what God says. You end up looking to, um, boy, you, you end up going places that might, might seem silly. I think they do seem silly. But here's what, here's what Genesis 1 says regarding uh, God's original design. As we know, the Bible says that God created. He spoke all into being. And so Genesis 1.27 says this, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. A couple of sentences here, but it gives us a great deal of information as to God's design, what his intention was as he created this world, this universe, as he put life here. He established the human race with uh, two individuals. First, he created Adam. The Bible says he formed Adam out of the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, right? And so Adam became a living being. And then he put Adam to sleep and he took one of his ribs out and he created Eve from that rib. And so God's intention here in creating male and female, very specifically, the genius of his plan is that he had a reason for doing this. He had a goal. He had an outcome. Something he wanted to see happen. See, uh, he says to Adam and Eve, in the very beginning, he says, listen, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so his design and intention was a planet full of human beings. Right? That's what he wanted. And so his design is genius to accomplish his plan. In male and female, you have two very opposite Creatures, right? You would agree with that, those of you that have been, are married? Very opposite creatures. Sometimes we, we look up at the heavens and we say, God, really? Do you really know what you're doing here? I mean, this is not easy, right? Uh, and, and it's not, okay, but listen, it's genius in that it works to accomplish the outcome. And as we all know, make light of it uh, because it's not uh, necessarily the easiest of pairings, but it is genius and it accomplishes what God wanted. First of all, and not the only thing, I mean, these aren't in an order of importance, but he had the intention of multiplication. So he wanted uh, you know, humans to fill this earth and, as I said, to multiply. And so uh, this ability to procreate, uh, to generate new life, occurs because of his genius design in male and female. And though, as I said, sometimes uh, we, we can struggle to get along, the outcome is what he wanted. Secondly, there is an intimate connection that he intended. Um, as I said, Eve was formed from Adam's rib. A part of his body was used 
to create woman. Though God created man first, and certainly his intention is that man would be in a leadership role, and he would lead out. God designed men that way, right? But he created woman to be a partner, to partner with him. The structure and the order is important that allows that allows this uh, partnership to be successful and to function, but an intimate connection. We have a bond as husband and wife that is deep and profound. And in, this is God's intention. He provided this in this pairing, was this capacity for this type of connection. The next thing that he had intended here was unity and relationship. As I said, there was order given. And there is order given. And again, we see attempts to move away from that order, to break down that structure, because that's what the enemy's trying to do. But when we live out uh, using God's directions, this, uh, this um, partnership, then it does work when, uh, when we follow his directions. And it provides this unity, which gives power to the family. And the relationship to be able to uh, go through life and to grow old, if you will, and to raise a family, all those things, with someone else. That partnership is profound and deep. It's something we all need desperately. We're created for that kind of connection. And the last thing I see is that God, in creating this dynamic, male and female, and that they would have the capacity to procreate and to reproduce, is that you see provided in this, you, you see structure provided, and strength for the human race. And so, as I've said before, God initially um, built and created the family because it has the power and it has the capacity to hold up, right, to stand up underneath human civilization. There is no human civilization that can survive if the family is destroyed or fragmented or doesn't work. Any civilization is only as strong as the families are that are within it. And so a smart government and a smart civilization looks to build up, support, encourage families. The next piece of this passage, God created them male and female, right? What comes before it is that he created them in his image. We are the image bearers of God. You have angels created, you have uh, animals Right? And they each have different uh, natures and, different, and they function differently. Angels, of course, as we know, uh, have intelligence. They're able to be with God, interact with God. But those angels that rebelled when Satan fell, they have no opportunity for salvation. They're destined for the lake of fire. They had no offer. God did nothing to save them. Okay? Animals, they react off of instinct. They're created to perform and to function, to live a certain way, and they do. They follow their design. But humans are altogether different. The Bible says that we are image bearers of God. Again, we are made to be like him more closely. Perhaps some of, some of the arenas, and a lot has been written on what it means to be made in the image of God, the Imago Dei, what does that mean? I think maybe three areas can be helpful. One of them is mental or cognitive. Our minds have a capacity to uh, think like God thinks. And of course, Romans 12, 1 and 2 speak to these issues. Our mind as believers, is to be transformed and renewed so that we think like God thinks. We think in accordance with his will and his direction. And then, of course, uh, so mentally, our cognitive capacity is different. Morally, we're, uh, we're held to a different standard. We're expected to act in, uh, in our behaviors in a way that reflects God's character. 
Okay, this is, uh, this is a requirement of us, and it's one of the ways in which we have the ability to do things like God does them. We can pick up on, we can, we can uh, acquire his character. And then lastly is social, our social interactions. The Ten Commandments, which we talked about last Sunday in our uh, follow-up to VBS, our Sunday in the park, we talked about the Ten Commandments, and we, uh, we recognized that, uh, that, that the last six of those speak to specifically our social interactions. How do we treat and behave uh, or, and act towards others? How are we treating the other humans that we interact with? See, this is important to God, and it's one of the aspects where we reflect God's character. We're made in his image. God had a plan. He had a design, an intention. It's been said that God is uh, the great artist who created this world, this universe, created us, and that when, uh, when we create, when any, anyone creates, what they create reflects on who they are. And so we can see from the world we live in, from the beauty that it contains, the complexity, the capacity that we have as human beings to live and to act differently, to love, to experience so much. It, this all reflects on God. The Bible says in Ephesians 2.10 that we are in fact God's masterpiece. He says, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. You are a masterpiece of God's. He created you very specifically, uh, and he has a, a plan and a, an intention, if you will, for your life and your identity. He wants you to help you understand who you really are, what he created you to do and who he created you to be. And as Ephesians and really the entire New Testament teaches us, it is only by responding to the message of God's grace the sacrifice that Jesus made for you when he died on the cross to pay for your sins, that when you respond to that act of grace, right, that sacrificial love act that was done for you, when you put your trust in Jesus, then the Bible says you can be redeemed, you can be renewed, your sins can be forgiven, and the relationship between you and God can be restored. And see, that is the beginning of the discovery of who you really are. What is your identity? What was this life? What is it supposed to look like? God's design is that a man and a woman would covenant together to form a family, that they would bear and raise children, and they would form a union that would last a lifetime. And that a bond that's so strong, and a union that's so strong, it can even survive when the kids leave home. Valerie Runyon wrote these words, he said, soon after our last child left home for college, my husband was resting next to me on the couch. He laid his head on my lap. I carefully took his glasses off. I said, sweetie, without your glasses, you almost look like the young man I married so many years ago. He said, sweetie, without my glasses on, you look pretty good too. <laughs> hey, um, hey, listen, uh, 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 it's, 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 it's God's design. It's okay to laugh a little bit at times, laugh at ourselves, but God's design is good. Can I just tell you it's good? It's the best. I know we don't all get to experience it. I know everyone that walks the earth doesn't get to walk down that path or realize that, that perfect outcome. And I know that sometimes it breaks down. It doesn't work. 
and we have to live with the, with the fallout from that. I get all those things, guys. I get them, and I don't have a lack of compassion for them. I've experienced those things myself. I'm not presenting God's ideal design here to beat anybody up, but just to simply say, let's don't forget what his intention was, what his design was, because it's still good. It's the best, and we want to promote it as people, as a church, as people that are trying to point people to God. Because the next two things I want to talk about are, are problems because people haven't seen or discovered or realized what God's design is, what his intention was. Human sexuality is at the core of our existence. We need guidance on this, okay? I believe that God made us. Part of what makes us image bearers, made in his image, is that we have a little bit of choice. We have a little bit of power. It doesn't supersede God's power. His will is supreme and it will be done. Our choices do not bring into uh, uh, question his ultimate will. But as I see it, God's given us the ability to make some choices, have a little bit of power. And so we have choices to make. And so from the beginning, right, this was a risky decision. (laughs) Seems risky. God could have controlled everything, made sure that we did the right thing. And some people really get frustrated with God that he didn't control it all. Well, so much harm has been brought because of sin and damage and people are going to hell and all this stuff is happening and it seems so harsh and cruel. And yet the reality is, guys, that if we're to be made in a way that we can have a relationship with God, a real relationship, we have to have the ability to choose that, which means we could also choose that we don't want it, right? And that's the risk. That is the scandal. And yet God having the character he does. He didn't just want to create beings that were forced to behave a certain way, but he wanted to create beings that would choose. I think that's what real love looks like. And so God did create us this way. And so the, the possibility for us to go the wrong direction in all the areas of our existence has always been there, and our sexuality is no different. And I could spend... Uh, I could spend months talking about human sexuality and what the Bible has to say and ways in which we get it wrong. And let me just tell you, though I'm going to deal with homosexuality today, heterosexuals have a lot of issues too, right? We go astray when it comes to sex and we go off God's plan and design. But because it's a hot topic in our world, I want to deal specifically with what does the Bible say about homosexuality. Same sex sexual activity is really what we're talking about. Romans chapter 1, Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul writes a discourse on the condition of the human race. He says, guys, listen, here's where we're at, and here's how we got here, okay? And he talks about the nature that human beings have taken on where they want to walk away from, rebel against God's plan, his original design. And so this is the condition we're in, and he gets into human sexuality as one of the ways in which we've left or moved away from God's intention. So Romans chapter 1, 26 and 27 say it this way. That is why, talking about the human race's uh, rebellious uh, behavior, he says that's why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men. And as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. 
Now, we're going to talk about a lot of the uh, discussions in our culture about what the Bible says about homosexuality, and there's a lot. You've probably heard some of them. If you haven't, you will, because it's a hot topic, and it's being, uh, there's a lot of perspectives on the Bible that are being pushed in our culture. But I, w- I want to make it clear here, it's very interesting that the way this is written, specifically what is being addressed is same-sex Okay, sexual attraction and interaction. Okay, sexual behavior is what's being talked about, right? And, it, and what, what the apostle's saying, what God is saying here, is that instead of following God's design, the human race went away from it and started to askew what God's intention was for sex so that women were attracted to each other and began to have sexual relations with each other. And men did the same. Okay, so all the other conversations about this, and, and I'm going to go through some of them because they're just reality. You're going to hear them. I hear them. Uh, really come down to that. God was very specific in this about what the problem is, right? What the problem is with this is it goes against God's design. It might seem kind of common sense, and I think a lot of people recognize that, that even biologically, this, this same-sex interaction isn't going to produce the outcome that biologically we're supposed to, right? It's not going to produce offspring. It can't. And so from that standpoint, a lot of people recognize, boy, that probably isn't the way things were designed to work. And yet a lot of people struggle with this. It becomes uh, an emotional struggle, a sense of identity. Uh, there's there's um, appetites, right, that are there and people struggle with. And so it's become an issue that is really being pushed aggressively in our country. The acceptance of, and even the celebration of, okay, same-sex relationships. One of the arguments that I've heard uh, for a long time is that when the Bible speaks to same-sex interactions, really what it's speaking to is prostitution. And the argument that in the New Testament, there, you know, in the Roman Empire, there were, there were prostitutes and sexual prostitution, and that's really what the Bible's addressing when it speaks to homosexual or same-sex uh, sexual activity. The problem with that is that you can tell, <laughs> you don't have to be a Bible student, okay, to know that what I just read from Romans is very clear about what the issue is. It doesn't speak to an illicit uh, outside of, let's say, marriage or outside of maybe a monogamous relationship, okay, which prostitution would be. It doesn't speak to that. What it's dealing with specifically <laughs> is a specific kind of sexual activity. And it has to do with same-sex attraction sexually and activity that way. And so um, this argument that the Bible's dealing with prostitution really has, it has no grounding. It's used as a way in which to push people off uh, the position they're on. And that's all it is. It, It has no grounding in real Bible study or a serious reading of the Bible. Another trend that I've seen recently is this idea that the word homosexual does not appear in the Bible until modern times. And that word, right, um, is, is been added to the scriptures so that the Bible really doesn't deal with this issue or really doesn't speak against um, what we see today in terms of same-sex sexual activity. Again, the problem with that is I don't have to go to any other scripture than what I just read in Romans, though there are many that deal with this, for you to be aware that it's not speaking to, uh, the word homosexual is irrelevant as to whether or not the activity that's being addressed by the Bible is being addressed. And so once again, uh, it's just, it's misdirection. It's trying to bring up something that sounds like an argument that might make sense, 
But if you know God's word and what it says, it really has no merit. Um, some people have um, addressed and talked about the idea that, um, that God would make someone that ha- uh, to have same-sex uh, attraction, let's say. And then God says that it's wrong. And that that seems kind of sadistic and cruel, right? And so uh, with that, we really have to have uh, a biblical worldview. We have to understand what the Bible says about the human race. And that when we see us as human beings, the Bible says we're created by God. So that part is true. But it's also true that every single one of us is made and is born into a world that is uh, affected by a curse of sin. And so every appetite, every habit, every attraction, every desire that we have was not placed in us by God, okay? Um, uh, one of uh, the folks came last night, told me a little story of, um, of a woman who shares this, and I think it's a good illustration of how we struggle as human beings um, with, with these issues that can lead us to destruction. She said uh, this woman, as a little girl, about three years old, she discovered on her own without anybody showing her that if she were to eat a bunch of candy— her stomach starts to hurt, right? Too much sugar. That she could go in the bathroom, make herself throw up into the toilet, and then she, her stomach wouldn't hurt anymore. And as she got three years old, as she grew older, she began to practice it and figure out she could go eat as much cake, as much whatever she wanted, and she could make herself throw up, and it was as though there was no impact from it, no negative impact from it. Okay, so as she grows older, she continues this practice. And it isn't until she's an adult. And mind you, she thought she was the only one that did it. No one showed her how to do it. No one gave her the idea. She figured it out on her own. She practiced it into adulthood until it finally came out. And she was able to discover there's a whole, uh, that many people struggle with this and that it, that it's, it isn't certainly healthy and it's going to actually could cause um, serious damage to you as a person. And so she recognized this whole issue. And guys, here's the truth. The Bible says this. We're born into sin. We don't need any help figuring out how to do things that are in opposition to what God says. In fact, we have a natural tendency to do that. The Bible calls it a sin nature. And so we have this natural tendency. Because you have those natural tendencies does not mean they came from God. Okay? A sexual appetite, sexual desire, certainly that was put in you by God. But that you would go in directions he didn't intend, that you would have to battle appetites, lusts, uh, uh, you know, issues, that you would have to battle those, that God would say they're wrong, doesn't mean he created you and then said it's wrong the way you're created. God made us to reflect him. The real issue is what is our identity? How do we understand who we are and who we're supposed to be? We have a young man named Brady Cohn who's a minister in the Brian Fellowship and he lived a homosexual lifestyle for a period of his life. He came out of that, surrendered it, right? That issue, he said, nope, that's sin. I recognize it's sin. I'm going to agree it's sin because God says it's sin. And so I'm going to agree with that. I'm going to come out of that and I'm going to live differently. And so he uh, is married. He has children. He's living a heterosexual life, right? Submitted and surrendered to the authority of Scripture and to God's word and to Jesus himself. Yet his struggles have not gone away completely, right? Uh, Just like heterosexuals struggle with lust, And uh, we have our own sexual issues. We battle. Just because we're a Christian doesn't mean that all goes away. And so the question, can you be gay and be a Christian? You can have same-sex attraction, okay, and be a Christian. You can surrender that to God, just like all of us are asked to surrender our lives to Jesus and to follow him. Ultimately, our identities 
are not found in our battles with sin. Celebrate Recovery just occurred this week, and it was exciting to see all that God's done there. And uh, I, I noticed something interesting. As each person got up to share, they would say their name. Hey, I'm John. And they would say, I'm a grateful follower of Jesus Christ. Now, if you go to other step programs or other recovery type uh, environments, you'll hear a person stand up and say, hello, I'm John, I'm an alcoholic. Or hello, I'm John, I'm a sex addict, right? Whatever it might be. And they said specifically, because this is Jesus-centered and focused, we don't identify ourselves by our sin struggles. We identify ourselves as followers of Jesus, right? And the way he identifies us, that is our true identity. And so what is God's intention for gender In Genesis 5, verse 2, it says he created them male and female, and he blessed them and called them human. To be human is to be male or female. Um, There has been uh, attempts and issues with this that go way back. Gender issues, identity issues, people that feel like they were biologically born a certain way, but it's not really their identity and gender. And this is expanding, and it's kind of blowing up. And the truth is, that God created, his design was two genders. Your biology determines your gender. Our culture is trying to say your biology does not determine your gender, but it's a fluid thing that you can determine. You can really self-identify. The truth is that this is only bringing more confusion to an already confused human race, right? People that are already struggling to figure out who they are and to stay on the right path. It's not encouraging. It's not encouraging anybody in the right direction. It may seem loving, It may seem helpful, but really it is just opening the door to more confusion and more hurt. That's why our playing with this has really only produced higher suicide rates, more depression and mental struggles and emotional struggles, more delusion, more hurt. And that's all it's ever going to create. It's all it's ever going to produce. Sometimes, guys, encouraging someone in the direction they want to go isn't really helping them. Our world is trying to create a path where people can self-identify and control things that historically God has controlled. Again, this is not going to lead us in the right direction. Encouraging children to move in a gender direction other than their biological gender is not love, but it's really abuse. Um, Leaving a child's gender undefined gender neutral on a birth certificate is only going to create more confusion for them, not create more freedom. Administering medication such as testosterone blockers, estrogen, testosterone to children is again not, it's not helpful. It's not helping somebody discover who they really are. It's really an abusive act that is damaging even in a greater way young people. If gender is not based on biology, then why do we work so hard to change that biology? Ultimately, messing with what God has made and the way he's made it is never going to lead to good things. Psalm 8 gives us an indication of what God thinks of us, what our identity really is as his creation. And uh, it's, it's fascinating what he thinks of us and who he made us to be. In Psalm chapter, uh, or Psalm 8 says it this way, O Lord, our Lord, how, uh, your, mag- your majestic name fills the earth. Your glory is higher than the heavens. You have taught children and infants to tell of your strength, silencing your enemies and all who oppose you. When I look at the night sky and I see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you have set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them? Human beings that you should care for them. 
Yet you made them only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them charge of everything you made, putting all things under their authority. The flocks and the herds and all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and everything that swims in the ocean currents. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. Uh, Or your majestic name, excuse me, fills the earth. Truth is that God made you. The gender he gave you is the one he wanted you to have. It's who you are. It identifies you as a child of his, his creation, okay? The sexual orientation that he wants you to have matches the one he designed you to have. Uh, what, what I want for you and I want for everyone, the deepest part of me, I know this is a tough, I'm kind of hitting things hard, but listen, what I care about is that people discover and realize who they really are, who God made them to be, how God sees them. Because in that is to realize who we are and the fascinating reality that God created us in his image to do things that we can't even imagine, to do great things. And so often we spend so much time making mud pies in the mud and groveling around at the base level of human existence when God says, come on, man, I have more for you. I want you to do more. You don't realize who I created you to be. There's so much more you could do, and yet you're groveling around trying to figure out who you are down here at this level, and it's not helping. Let's get past that and move to the place that God wants you to be, to realize who he made you to be. And God has great things in store for you. He believes great things for you. He designed you. He knows you. He knows the hairs on your head, the number of them. He knows everything about you. Listen, you want to get with him? Get around God more, spend more time in his word, and you're going to discover who it is he created you to be. There was a man uh, walking through the woods one day, and he uh, found a, a bald eagle, a little baby bald eagle on the ground. Couldn't see uh, the mother in the nest, seemed like she'd abandoned it. And so out of concern, he took it home, and uh, he had some chickens in a chicken coop. So he put the bald eagle in a chicken coop, and uh, of course it had plenty of food, and, and it started to grow up, and it ate with the chickens, and it, it roosted with the chickens. It kind of started to act like a chicken, you know, and, and, uh, and so this eagle got bigger and bigger and, of course, got much larger than the chickens, but, but he was living with the chickens. He kind of thought he was a chicken. He kind of acted like a chicken, and along came a, a, a man who was uh, a man of nature, and he saw this, uh, this guy in his chicken coop, and he goes, dude, you have a bald eagle in there. Where did that come from? So the guy tells a story, and he says, well, God, a bald eagle isn't supposed to live with chickens, man. He's supposed to fly and soar in the sky, majestic animal. So he took the eagle out of the chicken coop, and he held him up. He said, uh, eagle, spread your wings and fly. You weren't meant for a chicken coop. You're meant for the sky. But the eagle saw the chicken coop, and so he jumped down out of the man's hands and went back uh, into the chicken coop because that's what he knew, right? Well, the man was not to be deterred, and so he grabbed that eagle, took him up on the roof of the house, and he said, eagle, spread your wings and fly. You were meant for the sky. You weren't meant for the chicken coop. And the eagle once again could see the chicken coop. He, he knew kind of what the man was maybe urging him to do, but he just couldn't see it. And so he jumped down, made his way back into the chicken coop with the chickens because uh, he knew that he was comfortable with it. Well, the man said, this just isn't right. This eagle can't live in a chicken coop his whole life. And so he took him up to the top of a mountain, got him away from the chicken coop and the chickens, and he said, eagle, come on, you were destined to fly. You were made for the sky. Spread your wings and fly. Well, the eagle started to shake a little bit, apprehension. He got a little nervous. He wasn't sure. It was a big drop off. 
But somehow, some way, at the man's urging, as he pushed him a little bit, the eagle spread his wings and he, in fact, was able to fly. And he flew off in the sky as he was meant to do. Well, we don't know for sure if the eagle ever thought longingly back to the chicken coop. Like, we don't know for sure. Maybe he did. Maybe there are times he was struggling to find some food and he thought, man, that chicken feed sure was good. I don't know. But the truth is he never went back to the chicken coop. He never returned to it. And, uh, and, and so he's still out there flying as far as we know. But I want you to know this, that God designed you for a purpose. He made you specifically the way you are. He created a world where you could come about. The Bible says that he was overseeing your development in your mother's womb. He is intimately aware of you, who you are, and who you're supposed to become. And all I want for you, desperately, is that you would not grovel at the level that Satan wants you to, mess around with sin and struggle there, but that you would grow to discover who it is that God made you to be. God, thank you for your love for us, the way you've designed us, the way you know each one of us intimately. The Bible says we are fearfully and wonderfully made. God, I pray for each person here, for those that might be listening online and watching this in the future, God, that you would help them to get in touch with you, to connect with you, to be able to discover who it is that you made us to be, how much you love us, how much you want only good for us. I pray that you'd help us as we navigate this world with people who want to move away from your design. Help us to lovingly, but truthfully encourage them towards you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.